We're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 5. If you have a Bible, let's open up there. And uh, we'll begin. This is one of those notoriously difficult to preach sections of the Bible. I tried to get Larry to do this week, but he just wasn't. <laughs> I got him to do Mother's Day, but not this one. Um, but anyways, this one is a, is a tough one because when you read 1 Timothy, it, it, sometimes it's hard to figure out, okay, how does this apply to me? Like, what do I do with this? And so the bulk of this section is all about widows. And so you may be saying, I don't know any widows. I don't, I'm not a widow. What, what does this have to do with anything? And so I'm hoping that as we look through this text and we read through it, that God will just really show you um, what this might mean for us today. And the title of today's sermon is The Practice of Godliness, The Practice of Godliness. And one of the things that always comes up is this idea of um, how do I practice godliness? What exactly do I do? And that's what today is all about is giving you some idea of how you can actually put into practice this godliness that God commands of us. And uh, it's going to be right from the text. And um, there's going to be four little sections on it. And I think it's really cool. The first section is this. We can practice our godliness by looking and at the church around us and considering and treating one another as a family. The second th section is going to be all about widows, and it's going to be a reference to all the vulnerable people among us, and I'll explain that in a little bit. The third section is how we can practice our godliness with our church leaders. And then the fourth section is how we can practice godliness in the workplace and uh, in the way in which we serve. And so there will be four little sections. I'll read the section independently and say some things and then move on to the next section. So let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father, thank you for the Bible. Thank you that the Bible is your self-revelation. It's the way in which you have chosen to reveal yourself. And so most importantly for us today, as we read the Bible, as we talk about it, as we think about it, is to not put ourselves as the center of it, but to make sure that you are the center of it. And so God, would you help us orient ourselves accordingly, that this book is about you. It's about all that you've done for us, how you rescued us and redeemed us and made us a people who bear your name for your glory. And God, thank you for what you've done for us as your church, the body of Christ. Would you teach us now? God, we understand from Scripture that we cannot understand the deep things of God or the spiritual things unless you grant us the Spirit. So God, pour it out, I pray. Give it to us now, we pray. Help us to know you. Help us to understand this text. And we'll give you the thanks for what you show us in Jesus' name. Amen. One of my favorite Christian authors who was probably one of the most influential authors in my entire Christian life is a man named Jerry Bridges. And uh, he went home to be with the Lord a number of years ago. And my wife and I actually got to listen to him speak at a conference uh, just a few years ago before he, uh, he died. And um, he's just one of my favorite uh, authors. He wrote three books which have been really influential to me. One was The Practice of Godliness. Another one is The Pursuit of Holiness. And the third one, which was most profound, is The Gospel for Real Life. And so I went back and I remember he wrote The Practice of Godliness, realizing that that was the title of my sermon that I've been given. I said, you know what? A guy wrote an entire book about this. I'm going to look through it. So I read it first when I was 19 years old. And so I looked through some of my notes that I wrote as a 19-year-old, which were always interesting, but nonetheless helpful. And so I saw this section that was underlined. And in the column, it said, Lord, make me like this. Just make me like this. And here's, here's what Jerry Bridges wrote in The Practice of Godliness. There is no higher compliment that can be paid to a Christian than to call him a godly person. He might be a conscientious parent, a zealous church worker, a dynamic spokesman for Christ, or a talented Christian leader, 
But none of these things matter if at the same time he is not a godly person. It is both the privilege and duty of every Christian to pursue godliness, to train themselves to be godly, to study diligently the practice of godliness. We don't need any special talent or equipment. God has given to each of us everything we need for life and godliness. That's a direct quote from 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. The most ordinary Christian has all that he needs, and the most talented Christian must use those very same means in the practice of godliness. It was a great encouragement to me as a 19-year-old to know that I don't need to be some sort of extraordinary Christian in order to be godly. In fact, according to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, God has already given me all that I need in order for me to be godly. I don't need to have special talents or abilities. I simply need to put into practice the godliness that he commands in me, which naturally leads to the question, well, what is the godliness that we need to practice? If I need to practice godliness, well, what is the godliness I need to practice? It's not good enough to tell an athlete, you need to go practice. You need to tell an athlete what exactly he needs to go practice. And so that is what I'm trying to answer this morning, is the question, what is it that we need to practice regarding our godliness? And this whole series that we've been going through in accord is all about understanding the gospel and then understanding the command for godliness and then having them become one. And all it's about is taking your belief and making sure the way in which you live matches. And today is profoundly applicable, I think, in terms of taking the gospel and applying it to our godliness. And so what we're gonna see is this, is that the practice of godliness is our personal devotion to God that results in actions that are pleasing to God. Let me say that again. The practice of godliness is our personal devotion to God. And it doesn't just end there. I'm devoted to God. No, no, no. Your devotion to God must result in action. And the actions that it results in are the actions that are pleasing to God. And so we have listed here in chapter 5 in the first portion of chapter 6, we have the very actions that God is pleased by. It's just a matter of are we going to do them? Because doing them, the actions that God pleased by, as a result of our devotion to God is the very practice of godliness that we need. So I'm going to read some sections, uh, the little sections that are kind of self-contained, and I'm going to explain some things, and then we'll jump to the next section. So we'll start with the first section, which is verses 1 and 2, which is the gospel and godliness, how these things come together and how we interact generationally in the church. Here's what Paul writes. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. The first thing I want to point out is the fact that Paul is writing to the church, to people who are not naturally related which means by physical relation. They're not related in that way. And so what Paul does is want to make sure that the church understands that the way in which we treat one another based on our gender and our generation needs to be that of a family. And that's why Larry says at our membership uh, time that we are a family here at Golden Hills. We're family. 
Now that is hard for us to comprehend because in America we don't really, I don't know, we don't really think of the church as a family. We think of the church as a place in which we go to exchange religious goods and services. I go to church to one, be entertained, or I go to church in order to get some sort of you know, self-esteem boost, or I go to church because they have these various activities that are entertaining to me. But the reality is, no, 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 church is the gathering of the family. And as such, we need to, as we gather, consider one another according to that perspective that we are brothers and sisters, we are fathers and mothers, we are sons and daughters, one of another. Now, if we're not related in the church naturally, physically, and yet Paul says we need to be considering one another family, how is it that we are related? And the answer is we're related spiritually. We have a spiritual relationship to one another. Now, how in the world did that come about? How is it that physically unrelated people are supposed to consider one another spiritually related? And the answer comes from Galatians chapter 4. It's through God's adoption by the Spirit. Here's how Paul puts it. Galatians 4 verse 3. In the same way, we also, when we were children... And that reference to children, as we'll see in a little bit, is a, a children of slavery, a children of the devil. When we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world or to worldliness or to the ruler of the world who is Satan. But by contrast, verse 4, when the fullness of time had come, that means in God's plan when he fore, foreordained what was going to happen, God sent forth his son, Jesus he was born of a woman, born under the law to do this, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Do you see that God's whole plan of redemption involves this? I'm going to send my son. He's going to go to earth, and he's going to, by his death and resurrection, redeem or purchase sinners for myself. I'm going to adopt them as sons. And I know we may get hot and bothered about the phrase sons, but you have to realize in the ancient world, the son is the one who is to inherit all of the father's goods. And so we have to consider God saying, I'm sending my son so that you would inherit all that God has. And because, verse 6, you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you no longer are a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. You see what God has done? God has sent Jesus to redeem us, to adopt us, to make us his children by giving us the spirit of adoption so that we may call him our father. So in effect, God has declared to all of us, take Jesus. He's here to purchase you. He died for you. He's resurrected for you. And if you are willing and understanding that Jesus is enough, you can take him as your own and I will adopt you. Now that is breathtaking. Because adoption, we have to remember, is a parent making a voluntary choice to a child who has no parents. I want you. Now think about that for a second. God Almighty has looked upon us lowly sinners who were children of the devil and said, nah, -uh, no more, I want you. I want you. And when we have the Spirit, God adopting us, we can, without 
hesitation or fear, utter those beautiful words, God is our Father. That's my dad. You see, this is good news. Once we were enslaved to sin, destined for death, but God sent Jesus to purchase us by his own blood. And he would set us free from sin and death through the washing of regeneration in the spirit. Jesus took our sin upon himself, bore God's wrath for us, rose from the dead for us in order to prove that what he did was sufficient and true. And now God is offering all of us forgiveness if you will trust that Jesus is enough. Jesus has done all that's necessary to forgive you. And if you're not a Christian here today, that's the good, the good news. That's for you. You don't need to work anymore. Jesus has done enough. And if you sense that guilt, that you're not enough, Jesus is here for you. Trust him. And if we have trusted that Jesus is enough, that he has indeed forgiven us, then what 1 John 3 verse 1 says is so true. See what kind of love the Father has given to us? That we should be called children of God. And so we are. You notice that the tense here is present tense, not future tense. So we will be. No. Right now, right now, if you've been forgiven of your sins and you have the Holy Spirit, God has adopted you and you are presently his child. Which also means this is that, well, if we're all adopted because we have the spirit and he's our daddy, guess what? When you look around, we're all brothers and sisters. Now, just like you don't get to choose your natural brothers and sisters, you don't get to choose your spiritual brothers and sisters. <laughs> now, sometimes we need to remember that because in our culture today, consumerism is the primary mental status of when people attend churches or choose a church. I want to go where it's easy. What if Jesus would have said that? I want to go to a church where I don't have to, I don't have to put up with people. You're going to be all alone. <laughs> all of us are fallen. Do you remember what Paul wrote in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14 and 15, talking about the reason why he wrote the, the letter of 1 Timothy in the first place? He says, I'm writing these things to you, Timothy, so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God which is the church of the living God. You see, we have to start realizing that the church is not just this thing we go to to receive as a consumer the different religious goods and services that are provided to us. The church is the household of God in which God is our father and we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And so what that means is we need to treat one another accordingly and we need to have the perspective of that as we come to church and as we gather. Now think about this, when you read the New Testament, have you ever stopped and thought about the reality that every time that Christians are referring to one another, that they refer to one another in familial language, brothers and sisters? Have you ever noticed that when Paul wrote this letter, 1 Timothy, he calls Timothy his true child in the faith? And now he writes in verses one and two that you're not to rebuke an older man, but encourage him. You need to treat him like you would your father. You need to treat older women as you would your mother. You need to treat younger women as your sister, younger men as your brother. Paul's saying we need to treat one another like a family. 
Joseph Hellerman, who's the professor of New Testament at Biola University, my alma mater in the fairest institution in all the land, once wrote a book called When the Church Was a Family. In that book, he writes about three central social values in the New Testament. And what I mean is this, is when you think about the culture of the New Testament in the time of Jesus in the early church, there are three values that everyone held to regarding the society in which they lived. And here's the three values. Number one is the group took priority over the individual. Think about that for a second. The group took priority over the individual. Now, how countercultural is that to America today? And so I'm not suggesting that we need to change our whole entire culture. What I'm saying is if we understand these three core values of the society in which the early church and New Testament was written, we'll begin to understand uh, how to read our Bibles better. So first thing is it's just a given. These people believe that the group was a priority over the individual. And if you're trying to make a name for yourself, you are disgracing the family or the group. The second value is a person's most important group was his family. So the group, priority over the individual, the most important grouping is your family. Which means all these movies about how you run away from your family and you assert your own individuality and you, you know, assert yourself as your own person. The New Testament, everyone's jaws would hit the ground going, what are you thinking? You are a sinful person. Third thing is this, the closest family bond was between siblings. Now that, that changes things. Because we would naturally think, okay, the closest family bond is probably between husband and wife. No. Maybe, maybe between uh, children and their parents. Nope. Definitely grandparents then. No. The closest, most significant and important relationship is the bond between siblings. Okay, so now let's go back and ask ourselves the question, how in the New Testament are Christians referring to one another? Siblings. Which tells us that the emphasis is your relationships in the church take priority over the relationships of the other people in the world. Now, of course, we pause, and I can feel it right now. That you're kind of going, wait, what? Do you see how far we've got off track from what the Bible teaches to where we're at now, that we are shocked and, and put off by what the Bible teaches. It's not about the individual, it's about the group. The group is our family and the family is the siblings and now spiritually, if we are to consider ourselves siblings in a family of God, then that means our relationship to the church is to be as Jesus says, unless you hate your father, mother, sister, brother, um, you cannot be my disciple. In other words, you can't love your natural family more than you love your spiritual family. That's not how that works. So when people say, I want easy Christianity, I go, well, then you don't want anything because that doesn't exist. I'm not going to preach Christianity light. We have to see the text and we have to see what's going on here. And what we actually see is it's beautiful. Jesus is called our brother. We are called brothers and sisters. And that is because the church is a family created by the Spirit through the gospel. Your family is not the church. That's an important distinction. The family is the church. 
only in the sense of if your family is Christians. But the church is to regard one another as a family, but the family is not the church. And we gotta change that. When the family becomes the church, it's actually an idol. We are to treat one another and our perspective of one another is to be shaped by the gospel. That we have been redeemed from the slavery of sin and the fear of death through the death of Jesus and through his resurrection and sending of the Holy Spirit to renew us and to make us new creations. That is the church. Now the practice of godliness is our personal devotion to God that results in actions that are pleasing to God. And so now we'll jump to the next section. So that was we as the church need to treat one another as family. And that in and of itself should be a sermon altogether, but I got more to go. The next section is we should practice our godliness with those who are most vulnerable among us. Vulnerable meaning, meaning most at risk to be uh, taken advantage of. Now, one of the things that is absolutely certain about God is that he is gravely concerned for the vulnerable people in any society. God is gravely concerned for the vulnerable, those who might be taken advantage of. And there's a fourfold grouping of people who are most vulnerable in the scriptures. This is from Old Testament all the way through the New. It's the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, and the poor. Those four peoples are the ones who God has revealed himself to be most concerned about. And he takes those people and their welfare seriously. So let's read this in verse 3. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents. For this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplication and prayers night and day. But he who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for the members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. When I read those words, it's, it stops me in my tracks. You see, Paul distinguishes between uh, a widow and a true widow. Now here's, you know, can you have a husband who's kind of dead and how does that work? And the reality is, the status is the same. What you have is a woman whose husband has died. But from that point forward, there's definitely some differences with what's going on in the church in Ephesus. You see, in Acts chapter 6, we're introduced to a group of widows who were Jews and a group of, another group of widows who are Greeks. And the food that was being distributed was being distributed disproportionately to the Jews rather than the Greeks. And so the early church's first controversy was, how do we deal with the widows? And so they established an office called the deacons. And so the deacons were raised up as seven men full of the Holy Spirit and discernment who were going to be able to distribute the food pro appropriately to both the Jewish widows and also the Greek widows. And so the church in Ephesus was doing this really, really well, so much so, in fact, that lots of widows were there and they were being provided for. Now, what Paul's doing is saying, look, I love that you guys are doing this, but we need to make a distinction that some are true widows and, and others really aren't. And so his distinction is this. You find it in verse 5. She who is truly a widow is left all alone. 
left all alone. She set her hope on God, continues in supplications and prayers night and day. In Paul's mind, a true widow is one who has no resources available to them whatsoever. You see, back in these days, a woman didn't work. She had no way to provide for herself. So if she has no children and she has no husband and she has no grandfather, then guess what? She has absolutely no means by which she can make a living. You see, back then, there's no Social Security. There's no Medicare. There's no pension. There's no life insurance. It's you either have a husband or a son who is providing for you or you are going destitute and hungry and you're going to die of starvation. In steps the church. And this is where Paul says, wait a minute. If there is truly a widow among you, then I have these things you need to do. But what Paul actually does is he's addressing something else. He's addressing the other widows who actually have family. Look at this in verse 4. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them, and that pronoun them refers to the children and grandchildren. Let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents. So what we see is godliness needs to be shown. Or in other words, godliness is our personal devotion to God, which results in actions. And what Paul is saying is this. If you have a widow in your family, you would better take care of her. You need to show your godliness by learning to take care of them, and he says, and to make some return to their parents. Remember, your parents changed your diaper. You pooped and peed all over them. And in today's day and age, parents are paying for college. Parents are paying for weddings. And they're going broke doing so. And so the reality is, children, if, if you're facing the idea or, or, or the reality that your parents are aging and are in need of support, you must show your godliness and support them. There is no wiggle room here. And this is really important. Paul says, love them, serve them, care for them, honor them. But the reality is, this is so difficult. Why is it so difficult? Well, because we're so individualistic. When our parents move in with us, they get in the way. How selfish is that? And so this is going to look different because of the situation. I get this. Many of you in our church are facing the challenge of having aging parents who need your assistance. But it's going to look different for all of us. Some aging parents just don't have the money anymore, and so they have to move in with their children. Some aging parents have debilitating diseases, and so they need care. And it's care beyond your ability. And so we have to provide for them by having some sort of nursing or have them uh, in a care facility or something. It's going to look different for all of us. But the reality is this. If you don't support, you are not godly. Okay? I don't know that's hard to hear, but... Sometimes we just need to hear that. And I want to show you 1 John chapter 3, how the Apostle John puts this into very sobering words. And I want you to listen for things like being born of God or being a child of God or practicing things or loving. 
And just think of the familial terms we've been talking about and all that kind of stuff. Here we go. You ready for this? First John chapter 3, verse 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning, which is the opposite of practice of godliness, is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God, in other words, no one born of God through the Spirit, no, no child of God, makes a practice of sinning. Why? Because we practice righteousness or godliness. Because he's been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness or practice godliness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. You see, there's only two categories. You're either a child of the devil or you're the child of God. There's no other category. That comes straight from Genesis chapter 3. You are either the seed of the woman or the seed of the serpent. That's it. And so the distinction that, that the Apostle John is making is that if you want to know who is your daddy, the evidence is how you love. If you love your brother and sister in Christ and also your brother and sister in your family, then you're a child of God. But if you do not, you are not a child of God. You are a child of the devil. You know, one of the most agonizing things about being in pastoral ministry is not trying to help people and convince people to become Christians. One of the most agonizing and difficult things for me to do is to help people who think they're Christians realize that they're not. And people ask me all the time, can you, can, I feel guilty, I feel uh, self-conscious, maybe I'm not saved, maybe I'm not saved, and I'll ask a diagnostic question. Do you love the church? Do you love the church? Do you love the people of God? Do you love gathering with the people of God? No, they're annoying. <laughs> I have to take the Apostle John at his word, seeing how he was a disciple of Christ and lived and, and, and walked with Jesus and, and ate with him. I just got to take him at his word. And what the Apostle John says, if you don't love the church, you're not a child of God. You're just not. And I don't know what, what that, how that hits you. I have no idea. But I can just simply say, if you're feeling something right now, you're like, oh, I don't know if I like this guy. <laughs> just know, one of the evidences of whether or not you're truly a child of God is if you love the church. We see this in verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. And the brothers is Adelphoi, which means siblings in Greek. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him, verse 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. You see, if you come to understand how much God loves you in sending his son Jesus to die for you, the most logical thing to do is, who among me can I die for? I'm going to pay it forward. I want to be Jesus to somebody. But if you are unwilling to do that, you do not have the love of God abiding in you. Look at verse 17. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. I know of churches 
that go into highly impoverished neighborhoods and they hand out granola bars and bottles of water. And I stop and go, that's it? We got, we got to do more. You know why Golden Hills has a thing called the Community Outreach Center in downtown Antioch? Because we want to be like Jesus to those who are impoverished. And I don't mean just poor materially. I mean poor emotionally, poor relationally, poor in the, in the, in the sense that they are oppressed in various ways. And the reason why we do that as the COC and in various other ministries in our church like Sell the Cross and whatnot is because we understand that God is the kind of God who fights for the vulnerable and the poor is among them. And so I want to introduce you to this God. I want to make sure that we all understand who this God is who fights for the vulnerable. I want you to see the heart of God and how, how much he loves and serves. Because when we love and serve the vulnerable like the widows here in 1 Timothy 5, we are being like God. Let's look at some verses. A sojourner is gonna be mentioned and a sojourner is the biblical word for somebody who is a foreign born person who's living among you and so we would say somebody like a migrant or an immigrant. And so here's how Exodus 22 verse 21 starts out. This is God speaking. You shall not wrong a sojourner or immigrant or oppress him for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Do you see how God does that? You know what it's like so don't treat people that way. Likewise, because God loved you, you can love others. Because God died for you, you can sacrifice for others. Because God forgave you, you can forgive others. Because you were a sojourner, you can treat sojourners the way that they ought to be treated. You see how that works. Verse 22, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives will become widows and your children fatherless. God ain't playing games. There are vulnerable people among us, the widows and the orphans and the immigrants who are liable to be taken advantage of and used and abused and God says, no. I won't have it. In fact, we see in Psalm 68, verse 5, where God reveals himself as the father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God. And then we see in Isaiah chapter 1 where God speaks to the people of God. And this is for you and I as well. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. If you want to do good and you, and you want to seek justice and correct the press, here's what you do. Stand in the gap for the vulnerable. Plead the widow's cause. And then he says in Ezekiel 22, verse 7, speaking to the nation of Israel who is in the midst of their exile because of their disobedience, he says, father and mother are treated with contempt in you. You're not honoring your father and mother and obeying the fifth commandment. Instead, you are mistreating them. The sojourner or the immigrant suffers extortion in your midst. The fatherless and the widow are wronged in you. You want to know why I exiled you? It's because you're acting this way. You know, we talk about that all the time in the Old Testament. The nation of Israel was exiled for disobedience. Have you ever stopped and asked yourself the question, what disobedience did they commit? 
It's this. They mistreated the immigrants, they mistreated the fatherless, and they mistreated the widows. And God is saying, I've had, it, I've had enough. Zechariah 7.10, when God is seeking to bring back the nation of Israel to the land and anticipating the coming of Christ, he says this, do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against one another in your heart. Do you sense that God is being serious about this? And then he says in James 1 verse 27, what does the New Testament teach? That religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Brothers and sisters, one of my greatest fears is that James 1.27, we only focus on the last part and we forget the middle part. Keep yourself unstained from the world. Many of us are endeavoring to do that. We, we only listen to Christian radio and Christian movies and Christian t-shirts and Christian bumper stickers. We're good. But the first half of the verse Visit orphans and widows in their affliction. We're doing great on the unstained from the world, saying, but how are we doing with the vulnerable? Are we standing in the gap? Are we pleading the widow's cause? Are we seeking justice? You see, when we do these things, and we refrain from oppressing the vulnerable and instead we fight for their good and we fight for their justice. We are not merely doing good things. We are doing the very heart of God. What could be more godly than that? Godliness is your personal devotion to God that results in actions. What better action could there be than to fight for the vulnerable? And I would include, the Bible doesn't have this concept, but I would, I would put in there the unborn as well. We as Christians are known for being against abortion, but I want someday for us Christians to no longer be known for what we're against, but being known for what we're for. And we are for good. We are for justice. We are for the widow. We are for the fatherless. We are for the poor. We are for the immigrant. We are for those who are powerless and weak. And so, yes, we believe in the sanctity of life from conception, but we need to extend it as Christians all the way to we are concerned for the quality of life, even in things like nursing homes, to the end. So we have to move on. Verse 9, Paul writes, let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, having a reputation for good works. If she's brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to good works, but refused to enroll younger widows. I'm going to stop there and just ask ourselves the question, what in the world is he talking about? What is this role? What is this list? You got an Excel spreadsheet? Just, what do we do? Most people would read this and go, oh, it's a list of widows, women who are financially in need of support. And I would say, yes, that's true, but it's only partially true. I also believe that that role, that list of widows, is not just the widows who are in need of support, but it's also a list of widows who are available for service. And here's why. 
When you start looking at the qualifications for the widow that are going to be laid out here, they're very familiar to us because they reflect the same qualifications that are needed for elders and deacons. And so what we're seeing here is Paul saying, look, widows, they don't have family. And the true widows have no family anymore. They have no resources at their disposal. And so we as the church have an obligation to them. But not only that, the widows have so much free time. And so let's not let them be idle and doing nothing. They're not going to buy a motorhome and drive to Florida. Like, no, these widows who are aged and they don't have any family anymore, let's do this. Let's encourage them to be devoted to the ministry in the church. Let's make their lives profitable. As Luke chapter 2 talks about a, a, a prophetess and a widow named Anna who was at the temple night and day praying and serving the saints. Let widows be like that. And so, so let's read those qualifications in that perspective. Here's what Paul says. Whoever's enrolled on this list of support who can serve the church, they have to be older than 60 years of age. Why? Because at this time, the life expectancy was, was really small. They didn't live very long. And so if you're over 60, you already got one foot in the grave. And so <laughs> Paul's just thinking, okay, look. <laughs> All right. The chances of them getting remarried are, are very slim. Now, again, our life expectancy in today is much greater. And so, okay, bear with me. But he says these things. They have to be uh, the, the wife of one husband. And, and Paul doesn't mean you can only be married once because he says in verse 14 that younger widows should go ahead and get married. Instead, what he's saying is if these widows want to be on our list for support and service in the church, they had to have been faithful in their marriage. They have to have a good reputation for doing good works. And here's some examples. They have to bring up children if they had any. Show hospitality, which means welcome strangers. Wash the feet of the saints, which is similar to John 13, where Jesus washed the feet of the disciples. Meaning you need to be willing to sacrifice your own dignity in order to serve those who need to be served. They care for the afflicted. They've devoted themselves to every good work. So if, if that is what a widow is like, then put her on the list. We'll support her and then she will serve in the church. But refuse to enroll younger widows for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry. And so they incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. You see, a young widow who is hungry and she sees a single, rich, non-Christian man, she might, be, she might be willing to marry him because going to bed hungry every night is just not, that's not fun. And in the ancient world, when you married a non-believer, you adopted their religion. And so Paul's concerned that these young widows, because they're so hungry and so desperate uh, to survive, that they're willing to do almost anything, like abandon their faith. And he says in verse 12 that they uh, abandon their former faith, or uh, in other words, they, they make a pledge to stay single and to serve the church. And, and yet when they have all this desire going on, they decide, you know what, forget my commitments. I'm just, I'm just going for it. I'm hungry. So he says, I would rather the young widows bear, uh, marry, bear children, manage their own households, give the adversary no occasion for slander. Some have already strayed after Satan. Verse 16, if any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. In other words, Paul's saying, look, if you have a widow in your family, you need to take care of them. And if you choose not to, then verse 8 is true of you. You have denied Christianity and you are worse than an unbeliever. That is the crux of Christianity. 
I am an heir of all that God has promised. And therefore, in this life, I'll freely give because in the next life, I get it all. So therefore, let's sacrificially give and serve and care for those around us. And if we refuse to do that, you deny Christianity and you prove that you are not a child of God. Do you see the, the force of that? So if you will take care of the widows in your own family, then the church can become the family to those who have no family. So church, hear us out here. When we become aware of those who have no family, it is up to you and I to become their family. We have to do that. You know, I hear from younger pastors, and I know I'm young myself, but there's younger than me, believe it or not. But they ask me a lot of, when you go to a new church, how do you keep from getting lonely? And I don't know if you know this or not, but most pastors are lonely. And so when my wife and I got married and moved to Roseville, and uh, we ended up having our, our first child, Elijah. Uh, so we graduated from college, moved to a new city, went to a new church. I got a new job, and then we had a baby, and then I started my master's program all in a year. And um, it was the hardest time in my entire life. The closest family was over an hour and a half away. And so, yes, we had family that was nearby, but they couldn't come on a whim. I couldn't call them at one in the morning. I can't get this kid to stop crying. Help me. I had no one. Heather had no one. And then two families in the church, they adopted us. And they began to be there for us. And we had dinner with them weekly. They would be there to watch our kids. They let us go on date nights. Had it not been for those two families, I don't know if I'd have still been in ministry. Brothers and sisters, we have young families and young pastors in our church today who have moved across country and moved from their closest relatives who are hours and hours and hours by plane away. What a great way to love them is to practice our godliness by supporting them, loving on them, caring for them. Verse 17, so let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. The way we can practice godliness next is by supporting our church leaders, as I was just saying. And how we can do that is twofold. One is honor pastors and elders. Honor them, which means respect them. Obey them, as Hebrews 13 talks about. But also, it's about remuneration, which means compensate them. Let them have a living wage. You know, it's a scary thing to think about, uh, talking about giving a pastor a living wage because I'm a pastor. But I want to make sure we understand that what Paul is highlighting is those pastors who are doing a good job, preaching and teaching, and those who have been raised up. What he's not referring to is false teachers like Creflo Dollar and Jesse Duplantis or Kenneth Copeland, who are calling on their churches to purchase for them $54 million, $65 million jets. Because, as I quote from Kenneth Copeland, I will not be stuck in a metal tube with a bunch of demons. Brothers and sisters, if you're supporting their ministries, I want to encourage you as a pastor, please stop. Please. For the sake of those who are truly widows, please stop. We as a church need to become the family to the familyless, not to line the pocketbooks of these false teachers, please. 
And we need to protect elders too because he says, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that they may, the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you not to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. This is the protection that elders need. You see, there's going to be fierce wolves among you, Paul says in Acts chapter 20, who will rise up from among the church, who will seek to devour the flock. Jesus says there are wolves who dress in sheep's clothing and would love nothing more than to ruin a pastor's career in ministry through false accusations. So don't entertain any charges unless there's two or three witnesses. And those pastors who do sin, confront them. If they do not repent, then publicly rebuke them so that all the other pastors and elders may stand in fear. And if they still don't repent, then exercise church discipline and you better not put them in ministry. You got to get rid of them. But protect the pastors. Don't entertain false accusations. And what Paul says is don't do this out of partiality. I really like that pastor. He couldn't do anything wrong. Dude, come on. None of us are beyond temptation. We got we to gotta have each other's back. Watch my back. I'll watch yours. That's what it means to be a member of the church. I got you. You got me? Let's do this together. And then lastly is the appointing of elders. He says this. Do not be hasty in laying on of hands and not take part in the sins of others. Hey, laying on of hands is the ceremony to um, basically uh, anoint a pastor. And then he says this. No longer drink any water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Now we know that wine is a probiotic. And so he had some stomach issues. And so Paul says, hey, drink a little probiotic. That's my verse to prove that kombucha is good for you. <laughs> verse 24. The sins of some people are conspicuous, which means completely obvious. The sins of some people are obvious. Going before them to judgment, but the sins of other people, uh, they appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, they're obvious. And even those that are not cannot remain hidden. What he's saying about appointing elders is don't be quick on laying on of hands, but let some time elapse so that way you can make sure that this pastor or this elder has the kind of character that we need. Let some time go. Because some people's sins are so hidden and buried that they won't come out for a decade. Now, brothers and sisters, this is also an encouragement for you and I to commit ourselves to the local church. You see, I have this sneaking suspicion subconsciously. The reason why many of us want to go from church to church and bounce and hop and all this kind of stuff is because secretly we don't want people to truly know us. Because if they did, they might reject us. And so I simply say, look, let's be the church. Let's commit to one another. And let's commit for the long haul. Let's get to know each other. Because every human being wants two things. I want to be known and I want to know you. So let's commit ourselves to this, for better or worse. Because you and I all have these things we don't want other people to know, but you know what? There is freedom when you bring things from darkness to light. So let's be committed to each other as the family of God for the long haul. I got you. Get me. Let's get each other. And the last thing is this. 
The practice of godliness is our personal devotion to God that results in actions that are pleasing to God, and this is in the workplace. He says, let all who are under the yoke of bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. And let me just say this real quickly. New Testament slavery is not chattel slavery that we envision from the 17th, 18th, and 19th century. That's race-based. In fact, Exodus 21, verse 16 says, whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. You see this nonsense about Christianity supports slavery in the slave trade? Baloney. It is a vile, wicked, evil atrocity to humanity, and the Bible says so. However, New Testament slavery is much different than what we expect. We always think chattel slavery. Listen to Phil Graham Riken explain slavery in the New Testament. He says this. In the ancient world, slavery generally was not based on the color of someone's skin, except for slaves captured in ethnic warfare. That means intertribal. Many people were enslaved because of economic necessity. In some cases, slavery was voluntary. People sold themselves as slaves in order to clear their debts or in order to learn a trade, like an apprenticeship. Because slaves were members of a household, most of them had a fair degree of security with opportunities for advancement. They enjoyed a good deal of freedom and social mobility. Many earned a living or worked in partnership with their owners, and once their owners died, they received the business themselves. Some actually held positions of authority within businesses and administrative posts in lower levels of government. They worked in highly skilled occupations such as education and medicine. They were even, there were even slaves who owned other slaves. Most importantly of all, slavery was not necessarily permanent because there were a variety of ways for slaves to win and buy back their freedom. The best way to think about slavery is in economic terms. If you have a mortgage, you understand New Testament slavery. If you've ever been in a highly skilled position where you have to student teach or you're an apprentice electrician or something like that, you understand New Testament slavery. And in light of that, Paul says, look, you need to honor your bosses, your masters, so that the name of God will not be reviled. You see, we need to honor our employer, not so we can have great relationships, but it's so that God can be glorified. And some of you say, my employer is horrible. I know. But practice righteousness. Practice godliness. It's probably not going to be easy. But it's necessary. And he says, lastly, if you do have a believing employer, don't use as a, that as an excuse to be a bad employee. Just because he's a brother in Christ, it does not mean that you can take advantage of him. Work all the more harder. So, brothers and sisters, this stuff is difficult. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 says, God has given us all that we need for life and godliness. Brothers and sisters, let's trust God at his promise. If you step out in faith to practice godliness, God will meet you in that faith and supply you with what you need. He's promised that. So let's trust him. So Father, help us, I pray. And God, I pray that you would grant us all that we need for godliness. Do these things for us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.